Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Today, our topic is family history, the difficult stories and ethical dilemmas that doing family history can sometimes create. This is the first of two podcasts compiled from a series of family history workshops organized by the Raphael Samuel History Center in London. And to introduce it, I'll hand over to the workshop's convener, Julia Late. Hello, and welcome to the first of two Family History Workshop podcasts, which feature some of the speakers from the workshops which were held online in the spring of 2021. I'm Julia Late, a historian based at Birkbeck, University of London, and I put these workshops together in order to provide a forum where academic historians like me, who use family history methodologies, and family historians who work outside of academia, could come together to think through key issues and themes in what has become one of the most exciting areas of history making. The theme of this podcast is the ethics of family history, and it draws together various perspectives on the ethical issues and dilemmas inherent in this kind of work. First, we hear from Suze Vanderberg, who is a history teacher and holds an MA in queer history reflecting on what happened when they started asking questions about what happened to the men who had been caught up in the prosecution of The Link, a magazine that was targeted as part of the criminalization of queer men in London in the 1920s. So I was at the National Archives and I was looking through this file and I was like, this is really, really interesting. I want to know more about these men. So I decided I'm going to write my dissertation on this. And I very quickly ran into the problem that most of the sources I had on these three men were uh, from a hostile background. They were written by the government. They were written by uh, newspapers reporting on the trial from obviously a very hostile and biased background. And the other sources I had came from very heteronormative environment. They were very much the uh, census records, the marriage and death certificates, birth certificates, and I found this quite problematic as I was writing a queer history at its core. So I wanted to access the family archive. And with the family archive, I mean the stuff that's lying around in your attic, in your drawers, in your garages, as well as the memories and stories of the family that they have of their, of their descendants. And I wasn't sure how to access these at first. So... For this man, Geoffrey Brevis Ingman Smith, the only thing I had was this picture, which came from the Daily Mirror, and it was taken when he was leaving uh, the courthouse after being remanded in the case of the link. So that was the only, only picture I had of him. I was like, that's not going to fly. So through the 1939 register, I had already found out that he was living with a man named Alfred Augustus Allen. And then I requested his will, and Allen was also mentioned in his will as his friend. And his will also had an address in it. So I put all my big boy brave historian shoes. And I just sent a letter to the address. And I got really lucky because Smith and Allen's descendants were still living there. The will also mentioned a adopted son, Allen's adopted son, and he will become relevant in a little bit. 
So the family was a little bit confused as to why I was so interested in Smith. Uh, they had always been told that Alan was Smith's Batman during the war. Uh, and they had no idea that the two men were in a long-term relationship until I came along. I was a little worried about that, but luckily they were very interested in finding out more about Smith and they went digging into their garages. And they unearthed a lot of stuff that were really instrumental in me learning more about Smith from a less biased source. I found out more about his military career than I ever learned to hope. I found out that they adopted a dog in the 1950s that was called the Bard of Hastehill. I got to see his World War I medals. There were an amazing amount of things about him. The family memories also, they remembered his, him as a very reclusive and private person. These are all things that I would never have learned from the official papers that I had. I think the most valuable things were the little attestations that they found about the relationship between these two men. And one of these things was this memorial card. Uh, Smith died in 1969, and this card was written by Alan to, uh, to Joff at his funeral. It says, to Joff, always in my thoughts and our companionship of 45 years together. Rest in peace, Alfred. I have to take a moment and just sort of go, these were real people. This is not your actual own family. Take a step back here. But it was just really heartwarming and I think one of the most powerful I don't even know the word for it the most powerful illustrations of the things you can find in a family archive that you won't find in a regular archive or in official sources so it wasn't all love and joy in the London suburbs however I've already mentioned that Alan had a adopted son the family told me that uh, Smith and Alan had taken this person in, in 1939, when the boy was 14 years old. He was working as a, uh, an usher at a local cinema where Alan had met him when Alan had taken sick and the boy had cared for him. They also signaled that there, they felt there was an exploitive element within the relationship between Alan and this son. And they, at the same time, said that they were uncomfortable exploring this further. I have my own ideas about what exactly was going on there based on the uh, context there is of queer history of impoverished uh, boys working in cinemas, possibly going cruising there. But I didn't know if that was my place to bring up with a family that already signaled, we're not comfortable exploring this any further. So it sort of threw, threw me for a loop. I wasn't entirely sure how to deal with it. And it really made me aware of my position as a very nosy outsider, just coming in and going, hello, I would like to speak about your grandfather. Uh, did you know? And it led me to the following questions. How do we as historians find a balance between our ethical responsibility to respect family memories and boundaries and our responsibility and desire as historians to construct a narrative as close to the truth as possible? I ended up putting a footnote in my dissertation saying, I suspect there's more going on, but the family has signaled their discomfort around it, so I haven't pushed it further. Because I didn't just want to rely on speculation either, because I felt that was also kind of problematic. Uh, I'm not sure if that was entirely the right choice, but it's the choice I made. We're still thinking about that. But I also wonder, does this have to be problematic? Because I think historians do have the tendency to make a problem out of everything, and I am one of them. But does it really have to be that problematic? I feel like if we reflect on our position as those nosy outsiders and what we 
due to a family and their memories and when we come in and dig through the stuff they have in their attics. Uh, if we reflect on that position and if we consider the feelings of the family, if we make sure they feel involved and respected in their process, I think we're already taking great steps to not making it that big of a problem, to ensuring we have that balance between historical truth, whatever that is, and the way the family has constructed this memory of this person that you're researching. I'm not entirely sure if I'm correct on that. These are still questions that I'm still reflecting on, and I feel like historians overall would do a great job, or like they have to reflect on this as well to ensure that historical practice is as ethical as possible, I believe. Queer history as family history throws up particular ethical issues and challenges, but these help shed light on wider questions of identity and identification. Next, we hear from Justin Bengri, the director of the Goldsmith Center for Queer History, who reflects on some of these questions. I recently bought this, this postcard. It's a postcard sent in 1921 that shows a foggy view of Trafalgar Square with a policeman talking to a man in silhouette. So anyone who does queer history of the interwar period, immediately this, 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 this triggers something. It's very suggestive, it's very coded, even though this was a mainstream uh, postcard. It also has writing on the back, it's sent to a Mr. J.B. Glover in, in Birmingham. Someone else is, I think, somewhat campily complaining about the theater in London. But what I could do, because I had the full name and address of the person to whom this was sent in Birmingham, I went to some of the family history sites and looked that up, found this person, the rest of his name, because I only have initials, through the electoral rolls in, in 1921, found the house he was living at with the address here, found that that home was inhabited by two men, and that were the, those were the only residents. This got me very interested in this postcard. And I started doing more research into those two individuals, did find a queer story behind it, and bought the postcard. <laughs> so this is going to be a teaching, a teaching tool in the future as well. But I think it shows just immediately with five minutes of research using family history methods, how I was able to open up, uh, uh, well, I mean, I don't know how far this story could go, but open up a queer history that is now available to me through just that little tidbit of information. And I've had many more experiences looking through postcards, looking up individuals who are uh, showing up in more traditional historical sources, criminal trials, other documents, and following through them, sometimes finding the families, sometimes having having help from families doing their own family history um, to learn more about the individual that I'm researching. And it's just, it's, it's, it's opened up an entirely new way about thinking about people's lives, the sources that remain about them, and just all those little, little pieces that come together to fill out the details and complexity of someone's life across a lifetime and across the networks that they share. Because especially in queer history, the sources that we're left with are so often what one colleague has described as sources that, that describe people as the mad, the bad, uh, and the sad. But it makes them very unidimensional. They're either sick, criminal, or victims of the state. And it really flattens what are very rich lives into very often the worst moments in their lives are, are shared in traditional archival sources. And so everything that we have to tell about them is based on these often violent interactions with, with the state, the church, their communities, what have you. And, and, and of course, family history methods may, may 
us further uh, troubling stories, but it gives us a lot more richness to their lives and the rest of their lives as well. So I think when thinking about queer history and family history methods, I mean, there's, 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 there's a number of questions that are, I think, very general to, to history, to historical research and to family history, but some that are very specific to queer history as well. So I think we need to, to, to ask ourselves when thinking about the queer past and family history methods, what did people want known about themselves? What did they want to hide in their own lifetimes? What might their families already know about them? What might their families not know, not want to know, or know, but wish they didn't know? All of these questions come up. Were they out as, as queer in their own lifetimes? Is out even a relevant or useful term to think about people's lives before the very recent past. I think there might be a tendency to oversimplify and think, well, if so-and-so was out in the past, then this is fine to talk about them as queer uh, now. But it, 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 it isn't so simple to define people and categorize them in those ways in the past. And I think this is where sometimes we might come into conflict with both, I suppose, our relationship with historical actors, individuals in the past, and with their descendants today. Because I think outside of those of us researching queer history, there may not yet be that same sensitivity to the incredible diversity of expressions of desires in the past that are not binary, that are not just, here are the straight people, here are the gay people, and there's some troublesome bisexuals in the middle. Um, I think ultimately there, there is a reliance and emotional investment in that binary amongst a lot of people. And when queer historians like me come along and say, oh, I understand that your grandparents were married, but your grandpa also or your grandma also had this intimate relationship with someone of the same sex, or maybe it was not sexual, but still very emotionally committed. It doesn't have to be a consummated relationship to be interesting to me as a, as a queer historian. I'm really interested in those emotional investments in, in other people that aren't necessarily long-term committed monogamous sexual relationships. And of course, that can be in conflict with some descendants and some families' understandings of their ancestors, of their understandings of sexuality and their understandings of desire. So there are all kinds of ethical issues that come up with just, just identifying who falls within queer history and do we have conflict with, when thinking about family history, family members who may not understand their, their, uh, their ancestor or their family member as having that kind of history, that kind of life. We also have to think about questions of the sources that we rely on. I was speaking a moment ago about the electoral rolls. Okay, those are accessible, they're meant to be preserved. What about other family documents that maybe the person had obscured in their lifetime or they had wished that would not be saved or had expressly said these are meant to be destroyed? What if we come across documents that were meant to be destroyed, family documents, and yet they weren't? We so often lament as historians all the family documents and stories, the letters that were burned. But what about the letters that were meant to be burned but never were? What do we do with those and what obligations do we have to the dead to respect their wishes or to create and participate in creating a fuller, richer, in, in this case, queer history? But this is true for so many other histories as well. And this gets, I suppose, to my last question about the, the thorny issue of anonymizing and using pseudonyms for people in the queer past. I think there is, among queer historians, of course, a great reluctance to anonymize people because it suggests a sense of shame that this is something that is so shameful, we dare not name it. We dare not name the people um, who we identify as queer in the past. 
And so there's a very strong motivation among many historians to name people as a point of, of recovery, as a point of visibility, as a point of honoring sexual diversity as not something to be ashamed of. But this will come into conflict with families who do not want their family members named or do not want that, that, that information to be made widely available or individuals who, like I said, wish their letters to be burned, wish their memoirs and diaries to be burned. And in that case, are we naming them against their will? Are we pulling, pulling them, kicking and screaming out of the past and out of obscurity to then become to become something bigger, to become icons for queer history going forward. Someone whose history and story becomes momentous, becomes significant, becomes inspiring for others when they wished no such thing for themselves. And yet it is important to us. It is important to have those histories. It is important to have those stories. And, and I think this is a, 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 a troubling and troublesome issue, a profoundly important one, certainly not one that can be resolved. There can clearly be tensions in the way that family history identifies and celebrates people in the past from the position of the present. But as Daryl LaRue, a historian based at St. Mary's University in Halifax, Canada, discusses next, what happens when that identification is false and at the expense of marginalized groups of people? Uh, so I'm presenting a, a quite a different social and political context. I'm going to give a little bit of the sort of historical context because I think it's important uh, to understand it. Uh, but really what, what I'm going to talk about is, in a way, almost the inverse of what Justin just presented. Uh, it's a situation where individuals really want to find something in the past, so much so that they make it up. So uh, in this case, I research French Canadians like myself. Some of them uh, live in Quebec and are Quebecois. Some of them live in other parts of Canada and some of them um, immigrated to the United States. There's anywhere between 15 to 17 million French descendants as they call them. Most don't speak French, obviously a significant portion do uh, primarily in Eastern Canada. The uh, genealogical records for a 400 year period uh, for French descendants are among the most complete in the world. And that's because the Catholic Church took extremely, extremely good records, um, starting uh, as early as the French sort of arise, col arrived, colonized in Eastern North America. And that's because of an edict that was passed in the 16th century that basically made it um, against church doctrine for an individual to marry anyone closer than a third cousin. So uh, you could do it, but you needed a dispensation. So if you go in the records, you can find dispensations here and there. But um, church officials, priests, and others literally would keep genealogical records. And those have all been copied and are available online for free. There's a, a, a project, a university project in historical demography that's been going on now for over 50 years that has digitized over 2.5 million records between 1621 and 1850. All of those things are easy to access. So if you're a French descendant like myself, you could pretty much trace your, your history back to the, the first French settlers quite easily. One of the things that occurs is that there are 13 Indigenous women who marry French descendants, French men, um, before 1680. So that's from a, a period of about 80 years. There are quite a limited number of marriages, not a lot. You'd think there'd be more. There are obviously more unions. There are indigenous, mixed race indigenous children who are taken and raised by their mothers in their communities. What I'm talking about are women who are officially on the records as marrying French men and that their descendants become French Canadian. Almost all 
French descendants are now related to one of those or two or three of those 13 women. I'm, for instance, related to three Algonquin women, the Algonquin pe people being the people of the uh, Ottawa River watershed, sort of in the Ottawa River and north into Quebec area and a little bit into Ontario. That's not unusual. So in my book, Distorted Descent, White Claims to Indigenous Identity, I go through my own genealogy and how it positions me as, you know, a typical French descendant, 0.5% Indigenous ancestry going all the way back to before 1650. Again, not that unusual, over 300 years of, of, my, of my ancestors were white French descendants. What's happening today, though, is that people are using those genealogical records to turn themselves into Indigenous people against the actual ways in which Indigenous peoples in these territories define who's Indigenous. It's not simply about a blood relationship that one dis discovers in 10 plus generation history, but it's about ongoing social, political relationships with one's kin. Okay, so obviously there are people because of colonial policies who've been disconnected from their fam families. If you're not aware, the Canadian government, the US government were quite dedicated to taking children away from Indigenous communities. It's quite shameful part of our history and taking those children away to break up families and break up communities. So there are people who try to reconnect and are able to reconnect. And most Indigenous peoples have processes to be able to allow those people to reconnect, search those people oftentimes. What I'm talking about is something that's much different. So I'm not talking about policies that come into place post-1876 after Canada is founded as a country, uh, as a dominion. And uh, I'm talking about French descendants relying on ancestors much prior to that. So that if everybody who had that ancestry claim to be Indigenous today, there would be over 10 million new Indigenous people. Now, to put that into context, that's just in Canada, there'd be about two to three million in the United States. Again, to put that into context, um, right now in Canada, there's about 1.5 million Indigenous people. So if all of a sudden we allowed and accepted these claims, um, which aren't, just I'll get back to that, they're not recognized, but if we were all of a sudden, um, the rights of Indigenous people would essentially disappear because virtually anyone could say that they're Indigenous. Now, the courts, all provincial and federal governments, and most importantly, the First Nations peoples, so the Mi'kmaq, the Abenaki, the Algonquin, et cetera, et cetera, in Eastern Canada, because this is where the movement is strongest, have all been very clear in their opposition to this movement, have recognized that it's based in genealogical research and claims about long ago ancestors. So I just wanted to provide you with that context. So my research in my book, what I do is I, I look at what types of claims people make. And in, in particular, I went to genealogical forums that are geared towards French descendants, three in French, two in English, each with hundreds and or thousands of members. And the most, one of the most common claims, or at least questions in those forums is, am I Indigenous based on this ancestry? And so the really interesting thing that I've kind of pulled out, and I, I talk about three different forms of practicing dissent, because for me, dissent isn't something that you find, and then all of a sudden you have the truth about the past. For me, it's something that you do. So you find ancestors and you do something with those ancestors. 
you do something that fits your desires in the present. In this case, to become quote unquote indigenous. And so the first one is uh, the practice of lineal descent, the most straightforward, which is going back in the past, finding a, a, an ancestor in a, you know, a particular lineal line, if you will. And what happens in those cases is that the identity of those women who are found in the past doesn't really matter. So you have people who are claiming to be Abenaki and form quote unquote tribes in Vermont based on an Algonquin woman, which makes no sense. How could you be Abenaki if your claim is based on a woman who is Algonquin or based on a woman who is Huron-Wendat? And the identities of these women will also change depending on what political and social context you live in. What makes most sense for the type of claim you want to make in Quebec versus the claim you want to make in Vermont versus the claim you want to make in Nova Scotia? So that's one thing I found out with this practice of lineal descent. It's not just a matter of finding someone in the past. It's about changing their identity and or using their identity to change yours. The second one is the practice of what I call aspirational descent. And that's where all kinds of French women in the past, because remember, uh, not all French descendants are going to have Indigenous ancestry. About 20 to 30 percent won't find any. So for those individuals, there's a whole process through which women in the 1600s who are French are turned into Indigenous women. So again, it's much more about what you want to be in the present. There's all kinds of documents and records that suggest that these women are French. They've been French for the past hundred years of historiography, people writing about them, um, and they get turned into an Indigenous woman so that people can now say they're Indigenous. And the last one is the practice of lateral descent. And that's where you find maybe a name in your ancestry that's related to an Indigenous family in the present. Or you figure that, you know, your great, great uncle's wife's cousin was married to an indigenous woman. Therefore, you are now indigenous. Again, seems a little bit absurd, but on one level here, we're talking about a context, a settler colonial context where white people want to be indigenous. Thank you. Family history and genealogy, as LaRue shows, can be linked to much wider social and political controversies and used in the service of racism and settler colonialism. But also in a more general sense, family history often forces us to encounter difficult histories and thorny questions of whose stories we are telling and who gets to tell those stories, especially when one finds oneself outside the community one is researching. Next, we'll hear from Lucy Bland, the author of the prize-winning book, Britain's Brown Babies, the stories of children born to Black GIs and white women in the Second World War. I found that very, very little had been written. And I decided to sort of try and find some people. And I went on something called GI Trace. It's an online organization, self-help group for people tracing their GI ancestors. I was on the radio, local radio, Women's Hour, which is amazing. I had a huge response. So a lot of people said, I'm one of those I want to tell my story, which was incredible. And many of them hadn't told anyone about their backgrounds. These were these children were all illegitimate because all GIs had to get permission to marry from their commanding officers. And the black GIs were invariably refused permission with the white commanding officers because they would say back in the States, 30 of what were then 48 states had anti-miscegenation laws, you know, say it would be forbidden back in the states. So these children were born illegitimate. They were born in often very white areas where the GIs had been stationed around the country, often sort of small villages. They had no role models. They're growing up, not meeting other black people. They didn't have fathers or they might have a stepfather. And, and 
just over half were kept by mothers or grandmothers and the others were put in children's homes and generally were not adopted because the adoption society said they're too hard to place. Okay, so this book came out in 2019 and this research I did, it was the first time I'd worked with living subjects. <laughs> the other people I worked with have been conveniently or otherwise dead. And it felt a huge ethical responsibility. So I want to first talk more broadly about the ethical responsibilities of, of working with living subjects, but also the ethics of being a white woman telling the stories of people of colour. I mean, this, I was collecting their stories, I was talking to them, and as I said, most of them, well, all of them were very willing to tell their stories. They wanted to tell their stories. They often were telling me things that they said no one, uh, they had told no one before. I mean, all sorts of things came out that couldn't go in the book because that means up about abuse, especially the women from stepfathers, adoptive fathers, foster fathers. I mean, horrendous stories that they hadn't even told their children or their husbands. So I think a lot of them found it cathartic, but it also could be quite you know, upsetting. But at the end of the end of it all, the book was going to have my name on it. And I could argue I was simply a conduit for their stories, but of course I had the power to edit the stories. I tried to counter some of the inequality of that relationship by showing them everything I'd written and saying, if you don't want this, uh, you know, please cut this out or add something. And the transcripts of the tapes that uh, went to Black Cultural Archives, I sent them Oh, sorry, not the actual tapes, but I sent them the transcripts and they, you know, could cut sections out of that. But, you know, there's a question about their ownership of, the, of their own narratives. And so I have actually, you know, suggested that many write their own, own stories and they are doing that, which is great. They're also putting up more stories. Some of them want to tell more and also their children want to say more, say the grandchildren. On, on the online exhibition, because um, when we went into lockdown, I had a physical exhibition that was doing the rounds at the beginning of, of 2020. When we went into lockdown, I put it up as an um, online exhibition on something called Mixed Museums. It's a big exhibition there. And more and more people have come forward, actually, um, since the book's come out, saying, I'm one of those, or my, grand, you know, my grandfather or grandmother was a black GI and have wanted to sell their stories. So they are putting those stories over there, which is, is, is great. But then there is this question, you know, of should I as a white woman be doing this work with people of colour? And I mean, I know the accusations of white women and men appropriating stories of people of colour. I mean, I think it's, it's, it, it is quite a difficult one. And I haven't got, I mean, something I'd, I'd like to talk to people about. But I would say that in some ways there were, Differences around class were often greater than differences of race, I mean, or as great. I mean, it, it depended, obviously. So many of the people had, well, I think many of them were born as work, into working class backgrounds, but had become middle class. But some, I think here as I, are a middle class white woman. And many of them, of course, have been brought up in white families. So my being white wasn't necessarily such a, an issue. But as the oral historians will tell, tell us, the the nature of the interviewer interview relationship is a very difficult one and inter different interviewers will obviously get different things out of different interviewees so I felt it was very important to say about my own background and why I wanted to do this work so to make those kind of connections I, I told them that in my family there was a lot of issues around race and mixed races my father's second wife um he married a um, woman from Guyana I have a, a black stepmother so a black stepsister 
my partner and I have adopted um, from Guatemala. Um, my nephew has a mixed race children. I mean, this doesn't mean therefore I should be suitable for this, but all it meant was that I'm very interested in that. And the fact, and fact that also adoption was in my family, this was a kind of connections I, I could make. And I think that that was um, very important. I mean, on the other hand, I mean, someone did confront me about this and effectively suggested that I could only write about people like myself, which would mean I just have to write about white middle-class women, which would, you know, be very, would be fairly limiting and boring. So um, I think it's a, you know, it's a, a difficult issue. If there are challenges to being removed from the family stories we are telling, the next three speakers explore the challenges of being close. We'll hear from Cynthia Brown and Mary Stewart, who work at the British Library's oral history collection and who also work on their own family histories. And Kira Gomez, a family historian and public historian collecting moving and challenging histories of her own and others' families. What do we do when family histories contradict family stories? What do we do with uncovered truths? And what might be the value in misremembering? Um, my particular experience of this which raised uh, some questions for me about my maternal grandfather, uh, Benjamin Cunt, who was a regular in the Leicestershire Regiment for um, nine years. And that's, uh, that's verified. I've had a look at his pension record, which fortunately survived. And uh, this particular story passed down through my mother that he took part in the Christmas truce in 1914. Um, quite a lot of you will be familiar with this uh, sort of story, I think. He had an so cube and a handful of snow for his Christmas dinner. That was uh, the way it was put to me. He played football with the Germans and he never felt the same about fighting them afterwards. I was only five when he died, but um, I was told that he was a very strict Methodist. That obviously wasn't a lifelong thing because he clearly, the photos clearly taken in a pub. I think with uh, an advert for beer behind him but the, the disconnect with this story was when I started doing uh, looking seriously at the family history and uh, looked at his medal record and um, discovered that the medals he should have had if he was at the uh, Christmas truce in 1914 weren't on the record um, I actually had his medals uh, stuck somewhere in, in a cupboard, so I got them out and I had a look at them, and he didn't have the, uh, the medals in 1914-15. And that strongly suggested that he hadn't actually been there. Now, I don't for a moment believe that he was telling anybody a deliberate untruth. I don't know, did my mother mishear? Because the Leicestershire Regiment of Italian was definitely there. Was he telling her a regimental story rather than a personal one? Or did I mishear the story that she passed on to me? I don't know, but I was very emotionally invested in this story because I, as I knew, knew my grandfather for such a short period of time. He was, um, he was somebody in my family who'd taken part in this uh, very historic event. And um, I, I, was, um, I, felt I was proud of him. For that. But the, the next question was having found out, having this strong feeling that this story was not true, what did I do about it? My mother died before I discovered this, so I didn't have the ethical dilemma, should I tell her? 
which I'm glad about really because I think on balance I think I probably wouldn't have told her because she would actually have found it very upsetting I think but having got over the uh, feelings it produced in me I did tell other people within the family and they really couldn't care less to be honest and the sort of reaction I got was oh well and um, they were much more interested when I discovered we had convicts on, uh, on my mother's side as well. But um, I think it does raise a dilemma. If you do discover that a family story is not true, that it is demonstrably untrue in terms of the conflicting evidence, then um, what would you do with it within the family? And uh, at this point, I'll hand back to Mary and perhaps it's something we can discuss. So I look after, help look after one of the biggest oral history collections in Europe. And we have lots of people who may come to our, and hopefully will continue to come to, and more people come to our um, archived oral histories to find information about their family members. This could be through context. You may find someone who worked in a similar occupation and hearing them describe their work could be really helpful and useful and add new information and context to what you're, you're thinking about and discovering about your ancestors. We have lots of people who talk at length about their lives and you may find someone speak, saying something about your uncle or a throwaway comment about your grandmother and they may be stories that are very funny or they may be ones that are critical and we have both of those um, and many shades in between in the archive. And occasionally we do, people do find and are surprised to find a family member has a long interview with us in the archive. That's the picture I've got here, um, which is some research I've um, been doing for quite a long time um, about interviewing family members of our interviewees to seeing what they, they thought of the long life um, biographical stories that we have in the archive. So the chap in the background is Charles Pick, who was a specialist in the book trade. And he interviewed a lot, had a, about an eight hour interview with him, which was curtailed as he um, was diagnosed with a brain tumour and then died. And about 10 years later, I interviewed his son, who's in the foreground, Martin, um, about the interview to see what he thought of it and what he found out about it. And I think it revealed some interesting things for the ethics of family history in that some stories came out about Charles Pick's background and his uh, incidents of bankruptcy and massive change in circumstance that his son had never heard about before he'd listened to the interview. So I think that shows and Martin, the son, reflected. He thought it was because it was an interviewer from outside the family who could ask these types of questions and get this information which I think is quite an interesting thing for us to think about when we think about context and who's asking the questions and who's receiving the information. But he also told me lots of information that um, Charles decided not to talk about in his interview and did not tell the third party interviewer who had no idea about particular aspects of his family background. So I think that was very instructive to me, thinking about ethics, about really thinking about who's interviewing and why. I think everybody here knows we're all working in family history, that the stereotype that family history is cosy history is completely ridiculous. I think that shows someone who hasn't ever looked at family history and thought about it more widely. Within an oral history interview context, whether you're listening to an archived recording or you're conducting your own, there are potential for explosive re um, revelations. They could be ideas of abuse, there could be children who weren't known about, and actually sometimes the explosive revelations in a family may seem completely benign to someone outside that family context. You won't necessarily know they're explosive when you're, you're interviewing and listening to them as an outsider. 
there's lots of discordant testimony, people who will say things that don't agree with each other and don't agree with what's written down. And so lots of work needs to be thought about to piece together why that might be. And again, as Cynthia has, has so, um, put so well, the idea that we often have an extra emotional investment in the stories when we're looking at our family history. They really can touch us even more and have much more of an impact if we find something surprising. So these were Cynthia and I's ideas about considerations when thinking about ethics and oral history and family history, which is thinking about what's behind the story as it was told in the recording. It's not always, there are people who deliberately lie in oral history recordings, but it's not always that simple that someone is telling the truth or someone is lying. What's the purpose behind it? And I think that's why the context of the interview is so important for, for us to think about. And my job at working in an archive is to help make that context clearer to people so they can understand what they're listening to. So crucially, what did the interviewee think was the purpose of the recording? If they thought it was for one particular research project, they will tell a story in a very different way to someone who might be their cousin. Totally, maybe the same types of thing, but told and emphasised in different ways. Who on earth did they think was going to listen to it? Again, if someone thought it was a secret recording, then maybe we shouldn't be listening to it at all. And why does it still exist? And what control did they have over future access to their recording? And I think there are methods and ways to do that working in a formal project and archival structure, but also within a family context, which we've been trying to think through within our work in the Oral History Society. So I think if you're the person recording the oral histories as part of your family history, we're trying to get you to think about these ideas of context beforehand to try and so your interviewee is well informed and understands what might happen to the interview and then maybe they won't tell you if it's going to be broadcast at a family party about Auntie Gladys's two illegitimate children it might not be the, the way to do that they might tell you about it if they know you're going to keep it and put it in an archive and they can have some access and restrictions to that material and content. So I'm mainly going to be talking about oral history practice in a family history context, specifically at how misremembered accounts can still have value for both family and academic historians, but also for our subjects themselves. This is Lily, my partner's mum. And this photograph was probably taken in the very early 1950s. So it's before she was married and she would have been about 21 years old and last month she turned 91 and some time ago Lily opted out of much of 21st century life and decided that she would return through frequent and fairly loud reminiscence to the earlier part of her life and should we wish to interact with her then we must join her there usually circa 1947, so no bombs, still some rationing, and she would have been living at home but earning her own keep. And most of Lily's stories get repeated, and so in a sense they've become my mantras as much as they are hers. One factoid that she bestows upon me regularly is, I was 14 when my father died, did you know that? And I will knit my brow and tilt my head and say, gosh, so young. Except that it isn't true. Lily was not 14 when her father died. She was actually almost 20 
And while there are factual errors in many of her stories, this one demonstrates most clearly the value that can be discovered in misrememberings. So I know from documents that her father, Archie White, died of a heart attack in 1949 at the age of 57. But those are facts and they ultimately serve no real purpose in the contemporary world beyond mild curiosity. But I believe that Lily is telling me that she felt 14. She was the baby of the family, too young to lose a parent. And that opens up a whole world of information. There's no amount of documentation that can reveal the effect her father's death had on her. And indeed, even her own statement of sadness now feels a little distant and perhaps a little affected because it's been 70 odd years or more. But by recalling the circumstances of his death, incorrect as her recollection may be, she goes some way to creating a portal into her life, her feelings as a young woman. And there are plenty of other examples in Lily's stories. So did her two elder sisters really dive off the top board at Hackney Baths? It seems a bit unlikely that they actually dived. I think they probably jumped, but it doesn't really matter. Lily was the youngest girl and second youngest child in a family of six children. She's chronically the baby coddled by two much bolder sisters. And I think it's more that the dive from the board, whether it's true or not, exemplifies the way that Lily was perpetually in their shadow. So my partner tells me that Lily did not used to repeat these stories as she does now. And part of the reason she does it, I think has much to do with her increased isolation from the outside world, no doubt compounded by living through COVID times. Lily has always been an anxious woman, but this has been exacerbated by old age, her increased frailty, and the fact that she can't remember recent events or future plans. She's extraordinarily vulnerable. As a younger woman, she used to walk miles, even when pregnant. She ran a household, she raised two children, she worked a part-time job. The family even ventured behind the Iron Curtain in the early 1970s on a family holiday to Poland. Her vulnerability no doubt comes as a bit of a shock. I think it unnerves her. And the stories of little baby Lily in the 1930s and 40s are an attempt to draw a connection between her vulnerability then and her vulnerability now. Telling her stories has a value for Lily too. So Alistair Thompson writes that memories are significant pasts that we compose to make a more comfortable sense of our life over time and in which past and current identities are brought more into line. And building on this, Lawrence Langer writes that the factual errors in accounts seem trivial in comparison to the complex layers of memory that give birth to the versions of the self. Telling these stories helps Lily to cement her sense of self within the confines of a disease which strives to disintegrate it. The details do not matter to her and ultimately they don't matter to me either. This is her personal truth and she is sharing it with me so that my knowledge of her assists in preserving her identity, both as she was as a girl and as she is now, 
bringing the two closer into a coherent self. Emily was my first sibling. She was born when I had just turned five and I adored her from the moment she was born. We've grown up to be incredibly close, compounded no doubt by our shared experience of a fairly difficult background, but also getting on very well as people. And I was talking to her recently about this paper and she reminded me of how frequently we get our own memories muddled up with the memories that belong to the other. Her example was that she remembers that when she was about seven and I was about 12, a friend of ours came to visit and they brought their dog, a whippet. And Emily recalls that the whippet, a notoriously distractible breed, suddenly took off running while she had hold of its lead. And she was dragged along a gravel path on her face and stomach for quite a distance, clinging onto the lead. And afterwards she was quite bruised and grazed. I also remember this happening very vividly in fact, except that I'm certain it happened to me. And we're both in fact utterly convinced that it is our own experience. And we have a multitude of other such incidents in which we can't be sure exactly who experienced the event. And GEM Anscombe has turned this experience to remember, referring to things we imagine or hear from others and mistake for our own memories. I believe that it's an extraordinarily empathic phenomena, a psychic manifestation of an intense closeness and care between two individuals who did witness large portions of each other's lives firsthand. And the story of the Whippet tells us nothing except that an average sized seven-year-old is no match for an average sized Whippet. It's the misremembering that gives the story the value and explains to others the intensity of this sisterly relationship far better than either of us could otherwise. But of course, none of this is big history. Whether Lily's father died in 1944 or 1949 makes no difference to anybody else. Nobody is especially concerned about my sister and I being psychically linked to the point of losing our own memories. But the value that can be unearthed from this misremembering can be transposed onto bigger issues with wider implications. Perhaps the most uncomfortable example is the work of Mark Roseman, whose oral history work is unpicked in his essay, Surviving Memory, Truth and Inaccuracy in Holocaust Testimony. Looking at the case of one survivor, Marianne Ellenbogen, Roseman acknowledges that many studies explicitly cast doubt on the appropriateness of referring to the reliability of memory in the context of Holocaust history. The spectre of Holocaust denial looms and there is a protectiveness that survivors, their families and the wider public might feel about the sanctity of Holocaust memory. Despite this, Roseman argues, the misrememberings of survivors can offer us something of immense value and it does not have to be a binary choice whereby the written record is taken as gospel against which the flawed spoken testimony can be found wanting. He writes that where Marianne Ellenbogen described especially traumatic events, they often take on slightly larger dimensions in Marianne's memory. Periods of time were doubled or trebled. Sometimes she got facts wrong, changing the order or nature of events, something which Roseman believes to have been entirely subconscious. But for Roseman, these misrememberings allow us insight into the nitty gritty experiential truth of the Holocaust. The uniqueness of remembered experience personalizes the testimony, which is something especially powerful in the context of the Holocaust as individuality is something to be fought for 
individual stories essential as a part of misremembering those whom the Nazis intended to reduce to nothing more than statistics on a page. But Roseman also identifies another value that these misrememberings have, one with which family historians will possibly be more familiar than their academy counterparts. What Marianne Ellenbogen was doing, Roseman writes, is bringing the past under control in some small way. The details were not so important. What was important was not to be exposed quite so powerlessly and passively to an unbearable past. In doing this, Marianne Ellenbogen was wresting back control of her experience and bringing herself some small healing from the immeasurable trauma she had undergone. Allowing the subjects of oral history to heal in the retelling of their stories has a value that goes beyond the historian's dogged quest for the truth. It allows the subject autonomy and selfhood rather than treating them simply as a source. It is essential that we are not simply mining for stories regardless of the impact on our subjects. For Lily, telling me her stories helps. And I think that's as important as anything else. Thank you. It's clear that most of us take great care with our own family stories, even as we navigate difficult and dark terrain. But what happens when one finds oneself the custodian of thousands of difficult histories? To close off this discussion, we'll hear from Elise Bath, who is a senior international tracing service archive researcher at the Wiener Holocaust Library in London. Yes, I work for the Wiener Holocaust Library, which is one of the world's oldest um, and most extensive collections of material related to the Holocaust and the Nazi era. So do visit our website and check it out if, if you're interested in that. What I'm going to talk about today is one of the library's digital resources, which is the International Tracing Service Archive. The ITS archive contains over 30 million uh, documents in a number of languages related to the experiences of people caught up in the Holocaust. It contains things perpetrator documents, so you've got things like um, concentration camp records, prison lists. We also have post-war material, so this is a post-war application for assistance from the International Refugee Organization. So it's a really broad and rich archive um, and how I use it in, in the library, I use this archive to search for individual people caught up in the Holocaust. I try to find out what happened to them, map their path of persecution, and I do this at the request of their relatives. So I, I, I write a report uh, which I send off to, to relatives. A particularly difficult aspect of this ITS work is communicating this research to the inquirer. This is very subject specific, complicated and emotionally challenging information which is to be shared with normally an, a non-specialist audience with profound emotional connections to the material. And in relation to this panel and this workshop, I was thinking specifically um, about challenges of and strategies uh, for operating at that, that sort of nexus point between this very, very fraught, difficult history and the family that you're, that you're trying to do the research for. And if there was more time, I would absolutely be reflecting more on sort of the, the uh, rights of the Holocaust victim and the ethics of sort of unpicking their narrative without their consent. But in the interest of time, I'm just looking at that communicating traumatic information to, to a family, family members. And I'm also only really got time to pull out a couple of the key issues that I think might be useful to discuss. So a particularly difficult issue is that can be is with what can be seen as unsuccessful research where there's no trace of a person in the archive. 
Despite the scale of the ITS archive, it really is vast. There are many, many cases where there's simply no trace of a person. For example, people who were killed by death squads moving through Eastern Europe who were shot very near their homes. For example, there's, there's, no, there's no paper trail, so there's no, there's no paper documentation about that. And one thing I've noticed is that this lack of an answer, this lack of documentation is sometimes even more painful for inquirers than when there is a clear path of persecution that can be mapped out really, really well. However, in some cases, the act of searching in itself brings some comfort, even if it is technically unsuccessful because I haven't found any documents about the person. The search becomes a form of commemoration and a form of memorialization. So this little girl is Jita Nussbaum. She was born in 1933 and she was murdered by the Nazis and their collaborators in Latvia. There was no documentation about her in the ITS archive at all. I only know how she died because I know what happened to Jews in that area that she was living in. So this is an unsuccessful case. And yet, through doing this research, we, she featured in, in one, of the news, uh, one of the library's exhibitions that was picked up by Auschwitz Memorial, who published, published her picture and her narrative. I talk about Jeter a lot. And I'm absolutely not saying anything as trite or offensive as remembering her as an act of rescue. But I also think that it, it's not nothing either. And so I think that even where we think this has been an unsuccessful research case, um, how you can communicate that to the family members can still result in some, some sort of scraps of comfort being found. Another challenge I face quite frequently, and this has been discussed a lot, and I found it really interesting in this, in this uh, workshop, is what to do if your research disproves a family law or family stories. It's not very uncommon with me that people will tell me stories of what happened to their relatives or how their relatives acted during their persecution um, that turns out either to be not to be historically accurate or even historically impossible. So what do I do then? Like, what, What's my responsibility when this is sort of a family, a family law or a family narrative that's brought a great deal of comfort? And I thought that Kira's paper this morning was fascinating in the issues it raised about uh, misremembering having a purpose, but I wonder if I'm coming at it from a slightly different perspective, because I'm coming from the perspective of someone who has been asked to search in a specific archive for information about a person, and I think it's more about I have to report what I find. It's bound up in the issue of a researcher's duty and reputation. If I don't communicate what I find accurately, it leads to me not being a trustworthy inquirer, which means the Vienna Holocaust Library is not a trustworthy authority. It, it all can spiral. Um, so I, I don't think I, could, I get to decide on what I share. The only thing I have any control over is how I share something. What I thought would be interesting or hopefully helpful would be to share some of the strategies that I use and have to think about when I'm communicating or delivering very difficult, very painful information from the ITS archives to family members. So one of the key risks or key areas that I really need to dwell on is language and terminology. It's very important for me to strike a balance between using terminology that is accurate, clear, and also respectful, but also that the inquirers will not be unduly distressed or upset by. And this is definitely something that if I get it wrong, I risk jeopardizing the relationship that I've built with an inquirer or a family. And it needs to be considered on a case-by-case -case basis where I tailor the output to what I think or I judge the inquirer not can handle, but what, what would resonate best with them. I had an example where I had an inquirer where I said that his relative had perished shortly after arrival in Auschwitz. That was the term I used. And he really wasn't happy with that at all, which I completely understand now because he 
because I had removed the act of killing. This, this person hadn't spontaneously died when they arrived at Auschwitz. They were murdered in a very brutal way. And this, this inquirer absolutely needed that to be reflected in the language I used. So he actually needed me to say she was gassed to death on arrival. However, there are other inquirers where that would be completely the wrong approach to take and that would completely alienate and be very distressing for the inquirer. So it's a, a judgment call, quite high risk judgment call that I have to try and make. And one, one way that I can do that is by providing difficult information or particularly graphic information in layers. So I'm not coming out of the gate straight away with atrocity and graphic descriptions of murder and torture, you know, it's coming out a bit hard and a bit fast, that really, I think. So for some inquirers, it's enough to know a, a place and a date of death. Um, and they wouldn't want to necessarily know any other details about sort of the precise manner of murder or any torture that might have been carried out before, before death. So what I do instead is I try to layer that information. So in the basic report, I might give the date of death, the place of death. And then I'll say, I'll hide more details behind a web link or in another document. And I warn that it contains very graphic details. And in this way, um, I'm not exposing a person to information that they may not want to have, that they may not be in a position to deal with. But I'm also not being a gatekeeper and I'm also not deciding you can't have this information. Rather, I'm, I'm trying to sort of empower the audience to choose when and if they want that level of detail. So I'm not, I'm not closing things down. I'm just making sure that people know what they're getting into. I think key as well when you're researching this sort of uh, very traumatic history is, is contextualizing that within the within the, the victim's broader life. You know, my archive only looks at the last moments of a person's life or the last years of a person's life. It's very deeply traumatic and it's not all that person was. So I do try and not be a dead end. I try and couch the research within the broader context of a person's life, give information about sort of the community that they came from, suggest they approach people approach other archives who may be able to give information about a person's life rather than their death. And also I try and make sure to to be open for conversations and further explanations in future. Uh, the, the material that I share can be quite deeply traumatic and I've had people come to me months after I've finished the case because that's, that's how long it's taken them to absorb the information and be able to, to discuss it further. My final point that I want to make in communicating challenging information, I think is acknowledging that it's really horrible and it's really difficult stuff. I often write in my report, so you know, I'm very sorry to say that this, this means that you're anti died here or I'm sorry to say the reports show x y and z and, and I'm not being glib like I am sorry to have to say it it's horrible it's awful and I don't think that acknowledging that horror detracts from professionalism in any way there's a balance to be struck I think between being a bit removed from the material so that I can do my job but if I can't respond in a in a human way in an um, you know an empathetic way I, I think I'm in the wrong I'm in the wrong profession really as Bath goes on to say, it seems that we are collectively working toward a methodology of ethics for family history and genealogy, a conversation that began within family history and which has expanded and influenced the practice of academic history as well. There are no tidy answers to these tricky ethical questions, but it is certain that all those who work on family histories have plenty to talk about. Many thanks to Julia Late and to all the participants in the Family History Workshops for contributing to this podcast.
please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.